here it comes. The new year, 2023. You need to write that novel this year. But Tony, I've tried to write a novel. It's not easy. It's very easy. You need to write that book. You need to set the right expectations and you need to learn your process. Join me for a 90-minute workshop on Saturday, January 14th, 2023 at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern to write your novel this year and don't put it off for another year. Register at drinkswithtony.com or tonyduchesne.com to reserve your spot. The workshop is called Kickstart Your Novel. It's $15. Make 2023 your novel year. Register at drinkswithtony.com or tonyduchesne.com. You're listening to 101.9 FM KPCRLP Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here and welcome to Drinks with Tony. Today on the show, my guest is Douglas Abrams. He's the co-author of the children's book, The Little Book of Joy, with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He also co-authored The Book of Joy that the children's book is based on. We discuss how joy comes from struggle, the friendship of the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the controversy of the Dalai Lama taking communion, how to find meaning in life and death. When living with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, do either of them fart? And so much more. Hi, I'm Doug Abrams, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today, our guest is Douglas Abrams. He is the co-author of the book, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Tutu's Little Book of Joy, and uh, also with Rachel Newman. Did, did I attribute all of that correctly? I think I stumbled on that a little weirdly. Uh, no, that's that's perfect. Yeah, okay. I had the, the, the pleasure of working on the Book of Joy with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu uh for that's an, a, a book for adults and then uh we worked with them on the little book of joy uh, okay Joel newman my colleague and i did and yeah so so did dalai lama and desmond tutu like sign off on this did they go yeah this works did they have any input and went you know what no that illustrate i don't like how she's illustrating this when we come back <laughs> we, were they yeah. really tied in <laughs> they were amazingly uh generous about the process. Um, they definitely had opinions about how to portray Archbishop Tutu's childhood and the Dalai Lama's childhood. Uh, because, oh, okay. you know, they, you, as you see in the little book of joy, it's their story of um, their friendship. And mm -hmm. kind of, they became these incredible friends uh, later in life uh, where um, they were just like a comedy duo laughing and teasing each other. Um, and so Smothers like, Brothers, right? Like the Smothers Brothers of <laughs> spiritual enlightenment. And yeah. they, um, but the little book of joy is them kind of imagined as if their friendship had happened when they were children and to bring the message that they share to children. That must be fun for them and even for you to, because you know, essentially, um, thinking about it, because uh, it's like Dalai Lama is like in his 80s, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and 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 they didn't even meet until he was eighty. Was that the? Is that am I or around there? Uh, you know, I don't know exactly how old the Dalai Lama was when they first met. It was after they both received their Nobel prizes, and um, they met at a Nobel gathering. Um, and I would say maybe the Dalai Lama was in his seventies at that point. Um, Arch I hope. I'm sorry, I, I, I uh, Archbishop was in his what? Probably in his eighties at that okay. point. Okay. Um, early eighties, um, maybe even late seventies. He, um, uh, yeah, you know, actually I'm just trying to think when we did the first filming in Dharamsala seven years ago and Arch just left us, he just died in last December. So I would say, and he died at 90. So he was kind of 83 or so when we were in Dharamsala. So I think, yeah, they had known each other for at least a decade before that. So he was in his seventies too, probably. Now, one thing I really want to say from uh, that is 
I hope someday they go, someday somebody's saying, hey, when did Douglas Abrams and Tony Duchesne meet? Well, it was before <laughs> they got their Nobel Prizes. Um, yeah. I, I think it was only online, some podcasts, uh, you know. They, they they started their friendship in uh, 2022. It was the end of 2022, but right. it went on for years after. Right, right. But I like the Nobel Prize part, too. But you know what? You're right. Friendship's more important than these these trophies of uh, of things. The, the Nobel Prize looks great on a book cover, and then more people get it, right? Well, it, it's funny that you say that, because honestly, the two of them treasured their friendship, I think, far more than they did any of their uh, kind of external accomplishments or achievements. Yeah. And really, the message of the little book of joy and the message of the book of joy is that our greatest joy is our relationship with one another. Um, and they were such an extraordinary example of that. You know, they, they had this just incredible love uh, and friendship that is like, it was just delicious to watch. And, and I just, I just like the idea of taking them and making them kind of toddlers uh, or, you know, younger age and going, hey, what would their life be like if they were best friends and they just and, you know, they happen to just be in the same city and it's just like, hey, here's my point of view. Here's my point of view. You're wrong. No, but I'm going to beat you <laughs> at kickball, <clears throat> you know, and then a bully will come around. And I I, I got a lot of thoughts for the film adaptation. But, okay, you know, that's this... <laughs> great. It sounds like we're going to need you on the screenwriting. Um, we. um the, you know, they so the book is uh, a children's picture book, obviously, and so it's geared towards kids kind of three to eight years old. And that's why it was easy to read, right? And that's why that's what <laughs> that was great. It was like, I got through this, wow, I understand it exactly. So, the, I think that the idea of the illustrator is that they're meeting kind of when they're about eight years old at that mm -hmm. kind of early. Uh, definitive age of uh, of our lives and uh, just kind of the the struggles that they each faced with their own kind of loneliness and bullying and challenges and how they were able to discover uh, a kind of sense of perspective, which is ultimately a lot of what they share with us as adults is the, that the way we look at our life is so transformational to our happiness and the kind of life that we live. And I think the, the ability to give that insight to, to children early on in their life is incredibly powerful. And it's, um, there's, when, when you talked about like the idea of bullying, especially at that age, um, it, I, I've, this just came into my head. Uh, so, you know, tell me I'm crazy or you can't, you could tell me I'm crazy either way, but <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg maybe <laughs> where, um, what if there wasn't bullying, then would they have the same com um, the same coming togetherness against the bully? Do we need kind of an outside force to struggle against? Because if, you know, they, we can apply it to bullying or we can apply it to the weather and bad, you know, but, but like just sometimes that outside force of mm -hmm. negativity actually brings us together. Did that make any sense? I, yeah, I, that makes a lot. The well, T just know. kicked in, so I apologize <laughs> if it didn't. Well, it's you know, it's uh, it makes me think about the fact that they, you know, the Dalai Lama has this wonderful statement in the Book of Joy and in the film Mission uh, Mission Joy, which is the kind of film of our time together in Dharamsala, at, where he says, um, ad "We think that adver adversity is a problem, but it's actually opportunity testing us." And I think that um, and Arch has this other beautiful line where he says, nothing beautiful comes without some suffering. And I think really, whether we're children or I mean, throughout our entire life, you know, my, my dad, who died three years ago, um, used to say, you know, that uh, this is all like when he fell down a flight of stairs and was uh, it was in a uh, kind of a, uh, a, a, a what do you call it? He had a bra serious brain injury and was kind of not exactly in a coma, but he wasn't back to his right mind for about a month. And he used to, you know, my brother asked him afterwards, you know, I'm so sorry, this horrible thing has happened to you. And he said, no, no, it's all part of my curriculum. And so I think, you know, that is definitely what the Dalai Lama and Tutu are talking about in terms of all of these challenges that we face are part of our curriculum. And when we, if we get that as kids, uh, our life is going to be a lot 
less of a bumpy road. I love the word curriculum because because that kind of conveys that, oh, yeah, our life has a syllabus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and guess what? What syllabus do you want? Do you want the avoidance part where you because because, you know, some people think, well, I don't know. I could be wrong when I say, oh, you know, you know, is a little word whisker I always do. But, you know, um, <laughs> so, so, um, if uh, what do you call it now? I completely lost my thought because I got um, what do you what do you call you, it? You were talking about the, the yeah. people not wanting to be challenged by their life in some way. Right. And, um, and, oh yes. <clears throat> so like happiness and joy. And when people go, oh yeah, they had a happy childhood. They had a joyous childhood, but did they really, or did they get, or did they actually get pampered and in a bubble mm-hmm. where so much was avoided that they aren't ready for the bigger challenges in life? Well, you know, that there's, um, there's this cartoon that I read when I was a kid that's, that said, you know, um, to a, a, an adult who was not succeeding, you should have worked on your failure pecs, you know? Um, and it was like, you know, the bodybuilding that comes from dealing with adversity, um, you know, the kind of emotional psychological building of our capacity. And I think, you know, this is a challenge with a lot of kind of contemporary parenting, I think, in that it tries to bubble wrap our children and not realize that their adversity is actually what sculpts their soul and helps them become who they are meant to be. And so I, I agree with you that if we rob our kids of those experiences to struggle and learn, then they're not as adults then able to have the same uh, resilience. Now, when I bubble wrap kids, I do it around their face. So, so, so then they have a really there's great a struggle. Little, there's words on the packaging that says, do not, this may lead to asphyxiation. Do not bubble wrap faces. <laughs> this, is, this is candy, kid. Go ahead and eat it. This is, this is why I don't have kids. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a longer story to that, but, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, I like to think of the the harsh realities of hey, if your kid can get out of torture a bubble wrap around his face, they'll be able to either have panic attacks for the rest of their life or really get through a lot of adversity. Yeah, that's probably true, but let's not test them in that way. Let's not be the ones that test them. Like I'll read the <laughs> article of the person that's going to prison for doing such heinous things, but yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, how did you like, uh, how did you grow up? Like, are, cause you're, you're up in the Bay area, right? So yeah, we're actually down in Santa Cruz, California, which is- we're, we're broadcasting on Santa Cruz. So you'll be oh, able fantastic. to hear this on 101.9 FM. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. Great. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So you're, you're in Santa Cruz. So I'm in Santa Cruz, but I grew up in New York city. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah. I grew up. Oh, that's why you're so good looking. See, cause Santa Cruz people are like <laughs> ugly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so you grew up in New York city. Wait, where did you grow up? I grew up in Manhattan. Um, no way. Yeah. What a great place to grow up. It was an amazing place to grow up. Yeah. It was a really what part place. of Manhattan. Uh, I grew up on 79th street and East end Avenue, which okay. uh, was this really sweet little neighborhood right on the river. Um, and, you know, it, like everything, it had its challenges. And, you know, as my kids joke with me, I grew up in the biggest crime wave in, <clears throat> in New York history. Yeah. And, um, it was an intense time to, to grow up there, but it was, uh, you know, and um, I, you know, I had, uh, you know, a loving family, but my mom suffered from depression and I, that um, was very formative as well, just as a kid, you know, witnessing how much suffering can happen in our minds, uh, independent of our circumstances. Um, and also the, I mean, I, I have the, I have the same experience, not, not the exact same, but my, a mom who suffered from depression and also how, um, I, like, I tried to take on a caretaker role when I was way yeah. too young. I don't know if that happened with you. Yeah. I think that's kind of inevitable that you, as kids, you, take on the the caring role or the um try to step into that uh that void uh in a way that uh hopefully will be helpful and i think honestly it leads to some of our superpowers i mean we were talking about adversity and we work with an amazing woman uh named nadine burke harris who was the surgeon general of california and she works on adverse childhood experiences and one of the things that she says is those ACEs, those adverse childhood experiences often become our superpowers. Um, so that ability to step in and 
care is awesome. I love the rewording of that. Now I feel like an ace. <laughs> <laughs> Just two aces talking. What do you say? <laughs> so when you grew up, so you're in Manhattan and like you take the subway to school. How how does all that work? Yeah. I mean, you're deep in the biggest, one of the biggest cities and richest cities of the world. And yeah. Yeah, it was. Actually, are you eight years old on the subway going? I was on? actually able to take the subway at eight, um, and it was um, it was amazing at the time. New York was the biggest city in the world, and oh. um, it, it is. Uh, we, you know, I would take to go to um, school. I would take uh, a bus to a subway to a subway, so it was like an hour um, to get to my high school. Um, but that was actually short. There was, this was a magnet school named St called Stuyvesant high school. And there were kids who were coming from like Staten Island who were taking two trains and a ferry and another to another two trains. And so it was uh, amazing experience, but it was really city of school. And we got to just, you know, New York was our playground. It was amazing. It, it must've been amazing. And just so, I mean, that just strikes, I don't know. It, I don't know if like, I don't know a lot of things I keep saying, I don't know. It's probably something to do with my inner child, but um, if, if um, like when you're in that, you don't know that the rest of the world is not that. Yeah, no, you totally, I actually, I grew up with the New Yorker poster above my bed where, um, you know, where the, that famous New Yorker poster where the Manhattan is kind of everything. And then there's kind of California is this little dot out and then there's Japan and, and Russia, little kind of islands off in the in the on the horizon and i think new yorkers uh certainly when i was growing up thought of themselves as the new yorkocentric view of the universe um and you definitely just think that that's everything but um honestly uh when i came out to school in california i uh, discovered another wonderful place to be yeah did you go to school in uh, santa santa cruz or uh actually no over the hill at stanford uh, okay and which beautiful uh, campus yeah gorgeous campus and uh met my bride there and settled settled down here in california wow so wait so you met the woman that you fell in love with in college and you're still together well yeah that's right yeah congrats okay now now how, now how do see i'm a divorce dude so how do you <laughs> wait what are some tips on staying together especially with like, your college sweetheart oh well um wow this um so many um but i think um you know it's it's interesting we um we've worked with john and julie gottman who are two of the world's leading relationship experts on their books um eight dates and love the love prescription and um we're they're doing a book right now called fight right that's coming out um oh and, that makes i love fight i love the title of that okay yeah, thank you and yeah. um you know i think it really is about recognizing that you marry somebody because they're different than you and then suddenly you are really frustrated for the rest of your life of why they're not like you um so it's really a lot more about being curious to why they are the way they are than feeling trying to make be correct and make them more like you Man, I would cut right there, but we still got more time. <laughs> That's really good. I like that. I like that a lot. It makes sense. It make and it and that's why I love the I you know, I love relationships. You it's healthy ones. Yeah. It's just because when there's two people together like that, there's also it there's also there's a challenge, but the challenge is like worth worth it even if we're banging our heads against the wall. And, you know, I think, you know, going back to the little book of joy for a second, you know, there's Dalai Lama and, and Desmond Tutu were all about that our greatest joy is in these relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that those relationships aren't damn hard, uh, darn hard. Um, <laughs> so some of the time um, really challenging. Um, but that is part of, you know, that is, seems to be, as my dad called it, you know, as he was dying, our love lessons, you know, we, part of the curriculum, we seem to be here to learn how to get along with one another and how to learn and grow. And, you know, I, I often thought if you were just going to be a monk who lived in a cave for like three years, you needed to be like, 
be up there that long to be equivalent to like one night of having a sick child that you're taking care of or being married for a week. <laughs> like it's yeah. like to develop the same spiritual development because you can think you're perfect, but not if you're married. Right. Yeah. The um or you're enlightened, I guess. You can think you're enlightened, <laughs> but not if you're married. You yeah. see the real reality of it. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. And and neither of uh those fellows, the uh Dalai Lama and uh Archbishop Tutu, they were they weren't married, right? So actually Archbishop Tutu was married. So he okay. was an Episcopal or uh in uh, Anglican in South Africa, it's called Anglican okay. priest and archbishop. And so they are married. Um yeah. and so he has um he was married to his wife for over 50 years and had um four children has has four children oh cool so yeah so he's and he really became a like a, an incredible uh mentor and father figure for me and i think i really having worked with lots of incredible people it was uh and many spiritual masters his being a householder having a wife and family really spoke to me as a because i really wanted to know how to do that path yeah in his way and it's now what now what does now what does like his belief system because the, the dalai lama doesn't choose to take a wife right there's no no in buddhist tradition um so monks do not get married right um, and so they um so he's uh you know n- never had a partner um and he's you know in his tradition he's considered like an incarnation of the of the of the Buddha and of the, you know, Buddha of compassion. So he's really much more like the Pope, if you will, of a kind of spiritual leader who soul focuses of is toward the tradition. When, when you're working with, um, you know, people like people who have these, uh, these faiths that also have rules, do, do you um, like, do you believe the Dalai Lama is a, a incarnation of Buddha? Or 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 how how does that work when you're if you have a different belief because I don't know what your beliefs are so yeah I mean I yeah. I um, am not a Buddhist um, and I mean I respect Buddhism and the profound teachings of the Buddhist tradition um, and I think the Dalai Lama is an extraordinary extraordinary person um, just like Jesus was an extraordinary person just like. Desmond Tutu is an extraordinary person. Um, whether you believe that they have, you know, ascended their humanity or transcended their humanity in some way to something else, that's not my orientation. But that doesn't mean that there's that there isn't that that's not a totally legitimate thing to believe. But I'm yeah, I'm yeah. very much about more about um, I, I'm more about insight and. Uh, facts than I am about beliefs. I'm yeah. Just, you know, kind of what is, what is the research show us is the nature of our human life and how do we improve that for all of humanity, including children, which is why this, the little book of joy is such a, uh, a joy to give to the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I had kids, that, that would be one of the good books that I would do. I've seen other books. Where I'm like, what? This is not. <laughs> but, um, but it's um the uh what do you call, uh the the idea of um I mean when when you like when you're talking to someone like the Dalai Lama for a long time yeah at some point do you have the conversation where you go hey dude I like totally believe like you've given us great knowledge but I don't believe that uh about the I don't believe all the um the the faith not the faith the um. What do you call it? The, the rules, kind of the rules the of the religion. The, yeah, yeah, the dogma. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Thank exactly. you. you know, I think that honestly, I I think the Dalai Lama's, you know, one of his key qualities and that of Archbishop Tutu is, you know, their humility. And I don't think they go around, you know, the Dalai Lama is not going around saying I'm an incarnation of the, you know, <laughs> Buddha of Kabbalah. He drops he, it when you meet him. <laughs> What's I up? Mean, <laughs> you know, he's, um, you know, he is, sees himself as a simple monk and um, he, you know, is very, you know, one of the things is that he said to Archbishop Tutu is, you know, I, I don't look at people as their status. You know, he, you know, I look at them at the human level. 
Yeah. Um, and what he said about Archbishop Tutu is, you know, he was talking about, well, how, how, what a wonderful person he was and a wonderful friend. And then he said, and this person, funny person, I, I really like that. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he really appreciates him for his human qualities. And at the end of the day, you know, we, we try to, you know, we, we create these social hierarchies of better and worse, but ultimately we're, you know, all as Arch says, children of God or, you know, just, uh, you know, human beings. Um, yeah you're doing the same human dance yeah yeah because i i mean i like buddhism a lot but i'm told you know i'm not totally on the belief system and i like there, there's stuff about like catholicism and christianity i totally dig and even as you said like jesus you know jesus was a cool dude i'm like i like the i like the parables that makes a lot of sense a friend of mine just sent me a, um, she sent me a, a t-shirt photo that she took and it said, uh, y'all need Jesus. And I'm like, that's something I would wear. <laughs> that's totally something I would wear. And people would think I'd probably, I'm probably like evangelical Christian, but it's just like, no, sometimes you kind of all need Jesus in you. <laughs> we, we, well, we all need that. Uh, we, we all have room to aspire to being of having those qualities of compassion yeah. and um and i mean he he set a standard of what a human life could look like i mean when archbishop tutu died in december i was just there was this extraordinary feeling of grief but also of joy that here was a man who left everything on the field of human life, you know, he gave it his everything, you know, there was nothing he could have done more in his life for others. I mean, he just left it all on the field. And uh, that's a rare thing to feel like, you know, you're grieving somebody who's just lived such an extraordinary um, and generative life. That, yeah, it's almost a celebration of sorts. Exactly. It's, it's sad, but it's just like, it's sad, but it's wow. We're sad because thanks for, thanks for what you've done, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we're sad because we will miss him um, and the world will miss him, but he completed his mission and his journey, you know, his curriculum was done. He, he had graduated. And not only that, he's, his influence is living on. So it's not like when he dies, it's over. He, he, the The beauty of, you know, it's the legacy that carries, you know, you know there's this wonderful saying in the, uh, the well, there's a saying that in the Bible that people know of the sins of the fathers uh, go on for the third and fourth generation. But the next sentence, most people don't know, which says the love of the fathers, and it's really fathers and mothers, um, goes on for a thousand generations. And, I didn't know the next sentence. Yeah, yeah exactly. I knew. Ex yeah. I knew. Oh, okay. Okay, go ahead. And so that's really um, the part that is, you know, that people. And I think you're right. Like his love, his influence, um, and and he, and all of ours goes on generation to generation. And thinking of generation to generation, we can have these spiritual gurus, and you and what a lovely experience you got to have of having him as a fatherly figure you know, in person and we can, and, but, and some of us will be able to have it and, um, you know, at a distance, but it's still a father figure that we can aspire to. Yeah. I think that, um, in the, you know, the books that he left behind the children's books, there's, uh, the little book of joy that Desmond, the very mean word, he, he did a children's storybook Bible that we did together. And, rewriting the 10 commandments for kids that was quite an amazing day at the office so 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 what do you do? okay okay let's hit adultery let's hit let's hit coveting uh thy neighbor's uh you know wife and when right. we say covet we're talking sexually right exactly so i was like arch what does this really mean for kids and he says mommies and daddies should love each other you know, that's, that's, Oh, I like how I look at, see, he brought, he brought, I brought it to the dark side and he immediately brings right. it to, yeah. well, it's like, what's at the core of that? You know, they yeah. focus their love on one another and, um, and really love each other. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it, and, and as you said, all of these 
uh, books and then the, the film, all, all of that will um, live on and, and influence people, which is a, a great sense of joy and satisfaction to know that. Yeah, it's, it's I think as part of the part of the human condition, I feel like it's all any of us want is, yes, you know, we don't want to die, but we're going to die. And that sucks. Yeah. I mean, this is speaking for me. I don't know about other people, but at the same time, I do want a legacy left behind and you know that's that's why i'm maniacal about doing certain projects because i'm like maybe that will live long on longer than me even though i'm completely delusional it probably won't <laughs> well you know it's funny you you're when you you made me think of the uh, woody allen joke of like i don't mind dying i just don't want to be there when it happens <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah but i do think that we do, you know we have a desire for our days to matter um, and uh, for people to benefit from our being here and for people even ideally to benefit after we're gone. Um, and I do think that uh, that the Bible passage is trying to get at the, the idea that our good deeds and our impact on others can live on long after um, we're gone. Yeah, I like that. Do it. Were you raised a certain faith? Um, I'm Jewish. Um, okay. It was, um, but my parents were very ecumenical. They would give me like, that's a big word. Can you tell me what that means? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were very inclusive. They were very open. Oh, okay. They yeah. Were, they were both publishers and okay. um, they would, you know, give me all sorts of books of like, you know, the Bhagavad Gita and the Zohar and the gospels. And um, they were just, you know, they, they believe wisdom existed everywhere and that you should and that we should benefit from it and learn from it that's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a it's a very unusual approach because i yeah. think we get you know so many of us grew up in homes where there was just one you know uh, understanding of truth or right. of tradition um and really you know the the human um banquet of that of uh, spiritual possibilities and insights and are there for us to draw on whether we, you know, from within our tradition, you know, there was one of the most beautiful moments in with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu in Dharamsala was when <clears throat> they shared their traditions with each other. And the Dalai Lama was teaching Arch the way he meditates and the Dalai Lama also Arch gave the Dalai Lama communion and uh, the Dalai Lama took communion. Although he, you know, he said that, you know, Buddhist monks don't typically drink. So, um, you know, Arch said, well, we're, I'm not going to let you drink and drive. Don't worry. Um, and so the Dalai Lama, when it came time for him to drink from the chalice, he put his little pinky finger in and took a little, a little sip to a little, a little, lick to uh participate in uh in the communion um, so he did was, get blood of christ he did and he right. got, you know and it was uh it was actually controversial because there's some people yeah. who are both on the buddhist side or on the christian side who would have problems with it but for the dalai lama and desmond tutu it was like we are all at god's table and yeah. you know we're we're there or at least archbishop tutu said we're at god's table that buddhists don't typically believe in a god figure so but they're their understanding is so much, uh, you know, of uh, was not broken into sectarian or narrow views of the world. They like to, and it was really amazing because like sitting with the two of them was like sitting at the mountaintop where all the world's religions meet. And, you know, what you see is compassion, generosity, forgiveness, this kind of selfless, selfless love um that permeates all of the world's you know at the core of all of the world's traditions and then we put a lot of rites and rituals and um and dogma around those core values but it's really the core values of our humanity it's so interesting that at the top of that it's all there and it's all love but then we get the trickle down and then it's not you know mm -hmm. there and like even people i mean what a kind of what a spectacular gesture for the Dalai Lama to take. Um, I, I forget what they call it, mass, the yeah, or, mass or communion, yeah, communion. It, I mean, that is something huge when you look down upon the populace who's strict Buddhist or strict um Christian and going, wait a second, no, because because I can't take communion because 
I, you know, I've done these two sins and now this guy who's not even um, in my, you know, dogma, he gets communion. So it's interesting. I I don't, and I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, I guess what I'm asking or trying to just put out there as a discussion is why does the trickle down become um, conflict and become where they push even more dogma and kind of more righteousness on each other when we're down here, not in the mountain and up in the mountain, it's all joy. Yeah. I think, you know, the, it's a great question. Um, and, uh, like all forms of trickle down, <laughs> you know, yeah. there, um, things get degraded and things get lost. And I think, um, our humanity is, is really, complex. I, I work with, I worked with Jane Goodall on the book of hope, um, which is a kind of second next book in the global icon series after the book of joy. And I asked her, you know, are we 51% good or 51% evil? And she said, after she was sipping her whiskey, um, she'd be here with us at Tony's drinks with Tony. Um, and she <laughs> she'd be the only one drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and she was, uh, she said, you know, I think we're split down the middle, half angel, half demon. And what de- determines which way we go is our environment. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, there is, uh, you know, I think there that we get into these, you know, we have deep in our tribal psychology, a kind of us, them reality where yeah. we're loving and compassionate toward those who are who are like us where we identify as part of us and those who we see as other, um, we can do all sorts of horrible things to. Um, and unfortunately that's just, that is, uh, seems to be part of the human wiring. Which it's, it, and I feel like we're in a very dark time of that type of human wiring because people are taking major sides and having not having conversation if, if you don't believe the exact same thing as blank 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 and it's almost like the church but it's in politics and it's in like culture where it's just like can can we just have a conversation can we still yeah. communicate you know instead of them bad me me and us good yeah i think that the more polarized we become the harder it is to have those conversations and to see our shared humanity and that whether we're Republicans or Democrats or um, Christians or Buddhists or Jews um, or Americans or Russians or, um, you know, kind of Hutus and Tutsis who, who were, you know, genocidally killing each other in Rwanda. Right. You know, I mean, whenever that kind of polarization happens and the hardening of those categories happens of who's me and who's other, um, it doesn't go well for humanity. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, you know, like books like this coming out and, you know, the, the, and the, you know, the Jane Goodall, I'm looking forward to that. It's just like, I think those help us towards a better humanity, but man, they, you know, not enough people are reading books. And it's, <laughs> it's how do, how do we crack it, man? How do we like, how do we really, get it out there you know it's hard we are doing films and tv too um and i think you know it really has you know it's those who control our culture control our future right so um you know the human imagination the human mind is very much shaped by the stories we watch and the, the what we what we tell ourselves and you know we are kind of in a trance of how bad we are and how cutthroat and evil we are. And I think that, you know, what the Dalai Lama Desmond Tutu to to us is actually um, we are fundamentally good. The aberration is the bad person, not the good person. And, um, you know, but when you read in the newspaper, you know, as the Dalai Lama said, if you read the newspaper, you know, that's all what you think is, you know, happening on planet Earth. And you see, 
you know, that these horrible things are, you know, raping and murdering and being corrupt, like that those that's kind of the defining feature of human nature. But actually, that's news because it's the exception. Um, the vast majority of people, that's not their reality. That's not what they're doing from day to day. Um, but we lose sight of that. And um, I think that they remind us that we have to keep that in perspective. We have to have that that clearer understanding of who we are if we're to have hope for our future. Yeah, and get back to like, you know, I, I always like the idea of just love your neighbor, uh-huh. love your neighbor as yourself. And it's just like, right there is everything. And and the kind of like, just, you know, it's, um, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in a religious family and then I'm not anymore, but I do jokingly say I'm religious, not spiritual. When people ask, just to, like, <laughs> throw them off because you know, I'm in LA, everyone's spiritual, but you know, it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. But, um, the um every time I try to make a joke, I lose my thought. How do I do that? <laughs> it's a showstopper. <laughs> I'm stopping the show on myself here. Um lo- loving your neighbor and the, and that and that means community and community means like you know who the people you're with and what's like around you. And I think it's so hard with social media now where people think that's the community, but it's not the community because what happens in my part of Los Angeles doesn't happen the same in your part in Santa Cruz where we deal with different things um, mm-hmm. as a local community together. You know, it's uh yeah, it's really, it's, I mean, the, the, the web has made the world small, but in some ways it's also taken us away from the small world in which we live um, yeah. and our neighbors and our friends and, and, I think that's that's really important as well to you know to, to maintain those kind of bonds. Um, you know, we we have a new book coming out um, with Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz called "The Good Life," which talks about um, he they ran the run the Harvard Adult Development Study, which is the longest study on human happiness, and basically what it comes down to is that the people who live the longest and are the happiest are the people with the best relationships. Um, That's what kind of, you know, even more than going to the gym, even more than the diet you eat, those things are important. But at the end of the day, it's really like, you know, the connection that we have with one another are the things that make our life meaningful. And I think that's comes back to what the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu are trying to tell us in the little book of joy. And it's, it's, and I, I just heard this recently, kind of like, because bees are always kind of looking at each other and they're always like checking in with each other. I think if I remember right, if I read this right in the hive and they said that humans are like, whoever they are, it's something I probably read off a tweet that is total disinformation, but they, they said, um, that like, we're like humans are like 10% bee. Like we need to keep like looking at each other and kind of just keep engaging even to the point when we're on the street and we, you know, we're walking down a city street and just to kind of judge and see each other and kind of like have that constant, like, is this safe? Is it, you know, oh, this person smiled, that um, that person's not smiling, that person's not safe. And it's almost like our brain needs that on such a huge level, especially, yeah. I guess, since I've realized that since we have um, all the lockdowns where you just, where we lost connect on the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then even when you look at prisons and they, the last thing, you know, people want to be in a solitary confinement, they want to be in the violent population because they lose their mind when they're not doing that little thing by looking at each other and do, it's doing the constant um, eye movement and whatever our brains need to do that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we're um, a, a hyper social species. Um, you know, we're pack animals and, you know, bees are a eusocial species as they call it in biology. And they're, it's almost like hive mind. And, you know, there's one kind of mind of, you know, the hive or the ants, and we're not quite at that level. Um, but we're deeply connected to one another. Um, and exactly what you're describing in this, we're, you know, I mean, someday we might develop a kind of scientific way of, of seeing how much even, without words or without, you know, even without eye gestures, we can pick up on each other's kind of emotional state and my, you know, and, you know, people talk about, you know, they ask me like, what was it like with, to be with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu? And, you know, are, are you like, 
do some magical things happen when you're around them. And, you know, I said, you know, like, look, when you just look into those eyes of compassion for five days, which was what we had together and, you know, your mirror neurons, which is part of, I think what you're describing the, the, the brain mechanism for why we're kind of picking up on each other's, um, kind of state and um, whether somebody's safe or not, or what their emotional reality is. Um, you know, you look for, you know, into those eyes for five days and you just, your mirror neurons are changed. You know, your, 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 it's just so fundamentally transformative to, to be around that kind of love and compassion. Isn't it interesting how much our eyes tell it blows yeah. my mind. It's it's, and it's just like, it is the connection to the soul. It's yeah. you need the eye contact. And then yeah. sometimes the eye contact's a little scary. And then you kind of come back and go, you know, oh wait, good eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um, yeah, the really that is kind of those eyes go direct to kind of the deep, you know, centers of our identity and ourself. Um, yeah. and they are how we connect with one another in the most intimate way. I'm really so aware of it right now. I'm just trying to keep my eyes very as neutral as possible. <laughs> You're a little bug eyed, but um, it's working. <laughs> You're freaking me out, dude. <laughs> okay. Now I, I have to ask this and feel free to just go, Tony, that's the dumbest question in the world. But um, did the Dalai Lama or uh, Desmond Tutu pass gas? <laughs> 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 um you know because you were with yeah. them for five days and i don't think anybody can hold it in for five days <laughs> i all i can say is not that i heard i, I okay I, you know now there's other senses there right though. exactly or not and not that i smell smelled either um yeah. there is a book and speaking of children's books we had this children's book um with, with our for our kids when they were little called everyone farts and uh -huh. you know, it's this very funny children's book about you know every animal and every person farts and yeah. um, so we all do it it's part of what you know makes us human the dalai lama did say this very funny thing about how when he travels you know he you know with his you know practices he can control his mind and he can go to sleep at the right time even when he's jet lagged and stuff but he said his bowels he can't control those, <laughs> you know, like those, those go when they want to go, you know, uh, independent of his uh, mental control. And he's vegetarian and he's getting a lot of fiber. And... <laughs> <laughs> I just think that, you know, it's just, you know, we, at the end of the day, we, there, we have a body and our bodies are bodies. They do what bodies do. Exactly. The, the the Dalai Lama, does he have like a private jet or does he travel like first class and all of a sudden you're just sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm next. <laughs> uh, you know, he went he doesn't travel that much these days, but when he was traveling a lot, he would travel commercial. Yeah. And, really? Yeah. You could be sitting. You could be like you could just score the seat and go. Yeah. No way. I'm right. going to talk. I'm glad we're on the 18 hour flight because I got lots of questions. <laughs> Pretzel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'd, he'd, I'd be his worst nightmare. It's just <laughs> Tony, peace be with you. I'm trying to sleep. I know, I know, but one more question about <laughs> when you, when you when you talk about um the books that we have coming out. Are are you talking about books that you're co-writing, or are you also a publisher? So we um uh, so there are some books that I'm writing, but then we have a what's called a literary agency. So we mm. work as a book and media agency working with visionaries who are creating a wiser, healthier, more just world. Uh, it's called idea architects. And so we um, find the people in the world who are really most, you know, most visionary and most contributing to the world that we need to create. And then we work with them on book and TV and film projects. When, when did you start that and what was the seed of the idea? So I was a, a book editor at HarperCollins, um, which is a big publishing company and owned by Rupert Murdoch and eventually decided, you know, I had made enough money for Rupert Murdoch and wanted to go out and create my own agency working on the side of the angels, you know, on the people whose ideas and values I most respected and most wanted to share with the world and um, made a list of the people I most wanted to work with. I had started with Desmond Tutu, 
on that list was the Dalai Lama, Nelson Mandela, Jane Goodall. It ended with Stephen Hawking, and I've gotten to work with all the people on that list. So it's been an incredible, um, incredible ride and uh, a good uh, reminder to make lists. Did you, when you thought of that, did you know, did you have a pretty good idea that you had the connections in the publishing industry that you're like, I'll probably get these people or was, were these like really long shots where you're like, I might not be able to get any of these people. It was total long shot. It was total. Mm -hmm. pipe dream. I mean, it was, um, you know, the, the, the ability to work with all those folks was just, um, it was, you know, totally punching against uh, above my weight class. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it give, it's a reminder of the power of when you kind of set your intention and you're kind of dogged about pursuing your goal, even and let, you know, surrendering the way you get there. And, um, you know, the, the first of those amazing luminaries that I got to work with was Archbishop Tutu. And um, so that was so that was the first that was the that first. was your first get. Yes. And what, yeah. what was, what was now, were you on the phone with him first or did you set up a meeting? How does that no, work? I mean, this is the way the universe works in its own wild wisdom is that um, I had gotten a book that, um, you know, he had done on the truth and reconciliation commission. And in the front of the book, it had said that his agent was a woman named Lynn Franklin. And then next week I'm at the book expo having meetings and I am meeting with this uh, woman named Angela Miller. And she says, Doug Abrams, I'd like to introduce you to Lynn Franklin and his agent at the time. And she was his agent before I became his agent. And, um, and I said, wow, Lynn, I have a project I would love to discuss with you. And she said, Doug Abrams, I'm so delighted to, to finally get to meet you because it turned out that when I was at HarperCollins, two authors that I had who were feuding with each other um, were her clients. And so she saw me being the UN peacekeeping force uh, with those, with those authors. And so she actually knew of me and my work and, and, you know, so we said, well, we'll get together. And, and um, it was, so we, we spoke and I told her the idea that, you know, Archbishop Tutu had given us his political message, but he'd never given us his spiritual message. And I want him to kind of give us the values. I mean, when I, he was a hero of mine when I was in um, college, you know, kind of the anti-apartheid struggle was our kind of Vietnam back mm -hmm. in the day. And uh, he came to speak at, at Stanford. And I was like, how does a guy like that, you know, this incredible charismatic moral leader, you know, how does he drive in traffic? Mm -hmm. you know, how does he live his day-to-day -day life? And so I told Lynn, you know, the idea of doing this book and, um, at the time, Archbishop Tutu was struggling from prostate cancer and um, traveling all around the world. And, um, you know, we met in Boston and, you know, I told him the idea. I asked him what was in his heart to say. And so ultimately, you know, it just became clear that I was going to have to help him write that book because he just didn't have the time. So um, he sent me this um you know, the, some of his sermons and his lectures, and I kind of wrote them up into the, a, a rough draft of a manuscript. And I met him in Florida where he was staying, where he was teaching. And I gave him the, the manuscript and he goes on, he says, I'm off to pray. And I was like, oh, darn, you know, he's, you know, God is going to evaluate my work now, you know? <laughs> so he goes off and like one hour goes by and we're just sitting there sweating and, and nervous. And God, God's not answering the phone. <laughs> a second hour goes by, a third hour goes by. Finally, you know, after like three hours, he comes out and he says, you know, you're not doing too bad. Let's go talk. And so we went and sat by the, you know, the alligator pond and, and, you know, I interviewed him uh, like you're doing here. And then we went and I kept interviewing him as we drove in traffic. And then I got to see how he drives in traffic and this, you know, as we're driving along the freeway in Florida, a car swerves in front of us, cuts us off and his, his hand goes up in the air and he says, there are some incredible drivers. And I said, okay, what just happened? What just went through your head right there? And he said, well, I did get scared as we all do. But then I thought maybe that driver was 
rushing to the hospital to get there for their sick relative who's dying or their baby that's being born. And then I blessed them and it was gone. And I just like, okay, that's that moment of human freedom when something happens and we get startled or we have a reaction and then we get to choose how we respond. And I think the little book of joy is the desire to try to give that freedom to, you know, to young kids so that they can look at their life with a little more perspective and a little more joy and be able to have that moment of reflection as kids throughout their entire life. And what a perfect um, human moment of truth, because we all have that first instinct. I mean, when I'm driving in traffic, I'm in LA, right? When I'm driving in traffic, <laughs> you're always driving in traffic. Right, right. And it's just like, and and you know, you gotta kind of change your mindset. So I so like someone will cut me off and right away I'm like, that person needs to not exist on this earth, right? That's the first thought. <laughs> <laughs> but I try to get that out of my out of the way fast. Yeah. And then I just create a character out of them. So I just kind of like, you know, a I, I in my head they're like a total buffoon and I create what's happening in their lives, and then that that dissipates everything and it just that's tells great. the story. That's great. Yeah. But, that's, but I think yeah. he goes a lot faster through the, through the process of the problems that, uh, or, or the, cause what a great way to do it, to acknowledge the, you know, what, what was that to, Oh, he's the, the empathy of humanity kind of thing. That person may need blank. So. Right. Exactly. And I mean, just, you know, as, as we're kind of coming back with traffic, I mean, I think the reason it's so disturbing when somebody cuts us off in traffic or we feel slighted is because we are that social species where we're like, we want to be connected and not be, you know, kind of dis disrespected. Um, and it feels like, you know, we interpret it as a sign of disrespect or somehow somebody's uh, doing us wrong as opposed to just, traffic and you know <laughs> the reality of driving in traffic um and uh yeah my heart goes out to you and all in los angeles who are driving in traffic and and all around the world there's a lot of traffic happening in the world douglas thank you so much for coming on the show it's just so fun tony uh, cheers to you and thanks for the time douglas abrams on drinks with tony check out his new children's book co-authored with the dalai lama and Archbishop Tutu, Desmond Tutu, entitled The Little Book of Joy. Next week on the show, we have David Leaf. He'll be discussing his new version of the 1978 book entitled God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth. Remember, join my Kickstart Your Novel workshop for $15 on January 14th. Go to drinkswithtony.com or tonyduchesne.com to sign up. Storytelling is everything. It's what we tell ourselves in our heads. It's what we tell our friends. And it's also what we craft on paper to communicate with humanity. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.
You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.